Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. And I'm Ruben Lerner, and we have this week half panelist, half guest, (laughs) Jeremy Green. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, Ruben. Hey, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Very happy to have you here. So... Jeremy, uh, why, why don't you introduce yourself? I, I think you might be on the show a while back, but regardless, um, all, all of all of those uh, all those listeners have since retired. So you might want to tell us what Yeah, sure. Uh, I was on, I think, maybe a couple of years ago now. Um, but I'm a I'm a software developer by trade. Have been kind of an independent operator for a long time. Do a mix of work for clients, just doing you know some consulting type stuff, some stuff that's more closer to contracting. Uh, have a number of SaaS applications that I've launched, uh, both by myself and with business partners. Have been doing SaaS work in one form or another for a lot of years. Uh, I can't even count right off the top of my head, but cool. that's that's kind of the the super short version of where I'm coming from. So. Many, many freelancers. I mean, there are obviously so many different things you can do as a freelancer. And even if you're like a programmer type, freelancing can take a whole lot of different directions. Just those of us who have been fabulous on the show can sort of demonstrate that variety. And one thing that we've talked about quite a bit is doing products. But one kind of product that, I mean, as you just mentioned, you do, and that people sometimes are sort of, they think about doing, um, is a SaaS, which for those of you who aren't up on the, uh, you know, cool acronyms of the decade, <laughs> the lingo. software as a service, right? Which basically means a web application, but one that you pay for. I mean, pardon me if I'm like making it too lowbrow there. Um, and so, so Jeremy, you mentioned you've got a few of these. And I think one of the things that I'm certainly curious to hear and our listeners, but also is um, why should you and why should you not do a SaaS? Like what are the sort of pros and cons versus other kinds of consulting? Because I know you do that. And also, um, since we've got some product experience, I'm sort of curious to, to think about and throw out, like, what, what are the pros and cons versus doing products? Um, so maybe we can start, but just tell us about your SaaS, SaaSes. Tell us how sassy you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, currently my largest SaaS uh, by customer base is uh, one called Remark. Uh, with a Q, it's at remark.io, and it's basically a document preparation service. Uh, lets people write 
documents in Markdown uh, and then convert them to PDF. And then there's also a relatively newer uh, feature that is aimed at uh, producing books. So you can write uh, all of your book content in Markdown and then produce PDF, EPUB, and Mobi um, all out of the, the application. Um, and then along with my business partner, Kurt Elster, we have three uh, Shopify apps in the Shopify app store uh, that each add, you know, some new feature to a Shopify shop. Um, and then I also have another kind of sort of SaaS that uh, is really a thing I, I built to scratch my own itch around HDR photography uh, called Cloud HDR. Uh, and it's something that I use with some frequency, uh, but have never really gotten around to kind of marketing or promoting or trying to turn into a business. So that one's kind of a hobby SaaS more than anything. So I actually know very little about Shopify, but I know that Kurt and others have talked about it quite a bit. And it never dawned on me that these Shopify applications people write are actually SaaS applications. I guess it should have been obvious sort of thinking about it a bit. <laughs> so, 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 so there, there's news to me on the show. Uh, we could, we could end right here. Um, <laughs> you learned your so, thing so, for the day. <laughs> so, so how, how did you decide to do each of these and how did you get them off the ground and at the risk of like, you know, uncovering too much, like, are they making money? And, and like, are you, as we joked before the, the, you know, we, we started recording, are you planning to retire in the next week or so with all your riches that you've accumulated? Uh, well, to start with the last question first, <laughs> unfortunately, I'm not ready to retire next week just yet. Um, but, uh, yeah, every, every, you know, all of the SASs that uh, have launched and are in production are making money, some more than others. Uh, the, you know, combined take from all of them uh, – more than pays for my mortgage and I think even all the related expenses on our house, uh, you know, electric, water, all that kind of stuff, um, you know, doesn't cover everything that I need to make in a month. But it's certainly a, a really nice addition to uh, my consulting work. Um, let's see. There was one other question in there that – oh, well, how the first one. How, how did they come about? Yeah. Um, so – uh, Remark came about uh, directly out of a mastermind group that I'm a part of. Uh, at one time, there was kind of a big gripe session about uh, document tools, basically, uh, where people were saying, you know, I, I am producing all this content that is going on to either my website or, you know, one forum or the other, uh, and I can write for those platforms in Markdown, uh, but then I, there just aren't any good solutions to produce quality deliverables either for clients or for lead magnets or for saleable products uh, that will let me write in Markdown and just have a thing come out that looks good without me needing to do a whole bunch of jumping through hoops and either writing a bunch of custom CSS or learning LaTeX whatever. Um, and so I kind of watched this gripe session go down for a while and then thought, you know, I think this is a problem that I could solve with a little bit of code. 
Uh, so I spent part of a Saturday afternoon kind of doing the to take somebody's markdown and turn it into a, a document, um, and then posted that back into the, the Slack room and said, hey, is this in the neighborhood of good enough? And the the response from two or three people in there was something to the effect of, when can I start paying you for this? I, I would I would pay to be able to turn that markdown into that document today if you'll take my money. Uh, and so I thought, hey, that's a that's a really good sign that, you know, and that was one of my first uh, attempts at kind of identifying a problem and. A, and target customers first, uh, I had many stabs at, hey, I'm going to build this thing that I think would be useful and then find out that uh, nobody really wants that. And it, that's not a real problem that people have. It's a thing that I imagine to be a problem. Been there. Um, yeah, it's really it's surprisingly easy to do. It's <laughs> really easy to do. Um, so you know that was that was kind of my first experiment with running a process that way, where I had real actual people that I know personally that had a problem that I was saying, okay, I think I can solve this problem for you. Um, and so yeah, and then Remark just kind of grew from there. Uh, after I had that initial, uh, you know. Encouraging response. I spent another couple of weeks. Uh, like that first proof of concept wasn't. I really didn't even write any code for that. I basically took the somebody's markdown and ran it through Pandoc and did just a little bit of tweaks on it to try to get some of the big features working, like auto-generated table of contents and stuff like that. Um, there was no actual software, just kind of one big old bash script or not even really a script oh. just one big bash command line that i figured out how to assemble <laughs> to get the thing to to work you know and so it was really just about producing a deliverable thing not even writing any sas or any software around it so then once i had some good feedback about that uh then i did spend a couple of weeks doing the stupidest simplest you know, Rails app that I could write that would let somebody use that bash script basically in a self-serve manner. Uh, you know, plug in your markdown here, hit save. A job's going to get queued up and then a worker process is going to slurp down your markdown and shell out and run this bash command to produce the PDF. And then it's going to get it back into the web app and you can download it yourself and I don't have to be involved in that process anymore. Um, and so then once people were happy with that and I started getting lots of suggestions about, Hey, I'd like to be able to do this or do that or control this or that. Uh, and so that's kind of where, you know, the, the SAS side of that kicked in and started working. Um, and then it's from there just been a, a process of listening to, my most active users and trying to figure out what problems they're having with it that I can solve via code. Or sometimes it's just about, you know, documenting something that is there better so that it's more obvious about what needs to be done. Um, and then, you know, unfortunately, sometimes there are problems that you're just like, uh, I, I'm sorry, I don't have a good answer for that. And if you need that level of control or, whatever, you know, maybe this isn't the right product for you. Um, so this first one really started, and I guess even continues to be a very iterative process, 
right? It's oh, like yeah. you, you threw you threw something out that was really, I mean, you know, people like to talk about uh, doing a, like a lean startup with the minimum possible that'll possibly work. And and you seem to have done that and people like that minimum. And so you just sort of kept growing from there. So there was never a danger really of, I mean, I guess it was a danger of you spending more time on it than it was worth in terms of income. But as time went on, more and more people, I guess, used it and were willing to pay you more for it as well. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah. I want to hammer on the point about the, that conversation was the beginning and, and continued throughout the product development because, uh, you know, I, I've done it multiple times myself where I'm like, this is a problem that I have. There must be thousands of people who have this same problem <laughs> and spend 48 hours or, you know, more, you know, a week, two weeks, whatever, building a proof of concept. And then you proudly launched the world, you know, proudly launched to crickets and in uh -huh. worse, proudly launched to one paying customer. That's the worst. So it's like, Oh, great. Now I've got one person paying me. <laughs> so yeah. it's, that's the, that's the most embarrassing. That's like, so anyway, so I, I love the, the part of this story that I love the most is that it started from a conversation, proof of concept back to the potential users, more conversation, sort of, you know, this product, this post facto product market fit thing is like, I, I just, it makes me crazy. Like, why would you have a conversation with, why would you try to have a conversation with people after you've created something? Why not have the same exact conversation before you do all the work? You know, it just drives me yep. crazy. So if I was going, yep. and I tend to, when I, when I'm working with a student who's like, you know, I really, I want to get away from this hourly billing thing. I'm going to make a SAS. Like I've just seen this go wrong so many times that my eye, my eye roll is not controllable. It's just, <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> but if they have an audience and if they're having conversations and if they, and if they have people who are dying to beta test it, then I can be convinced. I can be told like, all right, or, or if it's simply a, you know, a, a bash, a long bash command line script, not even script, like you said, just like a long bash command that they really need to do a little bit of research can take a couple hours. I'll have a proof of concept done by the end of Saturday. All right. That's cool. But going into your case, the problem with a lot of at least uh, software freelancers is that they're retreating from people to, they want to uh -huh. retreat to their cave code something up and then like proudly release it to the world. And yep. you know, they build it, you build it and they will come. It's just not true. That is a yep. movie lie. So if the, if someone came to me and was like, I'm going to build here's here are the, here are a bunch of people who have like raised their hand to beta test it for me, give me feedback. It's only going to take me two days. Uh, it ends up taking four. Okay, fine. But that's really, that's really not that much of an investment, but but I've seen people pour a year of their lives into this thing without any kind of encourage, outside encouragement from actual customers. Their friends will be like, oh, yeah, it's a great idea. That sounds great. I mean, I don't need it. It's not for me, but it seems like somebody might need that. Yeah. Everyone always says your idea is a great idea. This is like rule number one of asking someone, hey, do you think my startup idea is a great idea? Oh, my God, that is brilliant. I can't wait for you. to That, that will be such a success. Yeah, they um, want to be nice. That, that's they the sort be... of universal 
answer to that question. Yeah, they want to be encouraging yeah. and nice and supportive. But you've experienced that too, I presume, right? Oh, my oh God. yeah. I mean, it's it's the business equivalent of isn't my baby cute? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a fantastic analogy. Yes. Okay, so I just wanted to emphasize that point for people who are listening, and because building a SaaS is very seductive, they're like sick of working on their dumb clients, dumb code, and they're like, I want to work on my, I'm going to build my own thing. I'm going to make it perfect. It's going to be elegant and and pristine, and I'm going to print out the code and frame it on my wall because it's so beautiful, and it's really, really tempting to do that. Uh, so I just wanted to, I want to hammer on that point about having conversations with actual potential clients, you know, as early in the process, if not as the first step. Yep. And then um, just to kind of continue on the the question of where did these things originate and how did they get started? Um, the, all three of the Shopify apps that we have in the app store currently, um, Basic, you know, Kurt's been working in Shopify for quite a while, so he has a lot of clients, uh, has seen a lot of custom requests for work that goes into shops. Uh, And basically what we've started doing is if he finds himself building custom features into a theme for – like if he finds himself building the same custom features into themes for – two or three or four clients, we take that as a good sign that there's a broad level of demand for this particular feature. And so then we look and say, hey, can we turn this into an app so that it doesn't take custom development on a shot-by-shot basis, but is just something that somebody can install and turn on and it just works for them. Uh, And so so a lot of times... Oh, sorry. Oh, and then so a lot of times... The app will have to make some little customizations to the theme, but then it also provides a an admin area so that the shop owner can tweak the parameters that they need to that they might otherwise have a, a developer have to go in and make changes to their theme. Hmm. So I was just going to jump in and, and ask for you to describe a little bit what, what a... a what a Shopify app is like, what's the parallel? Is it like a WordPress plugin? Like, you know, Shopify is an e- a hosted e-commerce platform mm-hmm. and these apps are like, you know, like what, what are they? Is it a thing? Is it code that they like, how does it work? Is it really yeah, a SaaS is what I'm getting at. Like how, how is it a SaaS? It sounds like a plugin. Okay. Yeah. It's very similar to a WordPress plugin, but the, it would be like, if instead of uh, you installed, like instead of downloading a, a zip full of PHP files that you then upload or unzip into a directory in your WordPress install, it would be more like uh, you just link to an external site that provides the plugin for you. Um, and can talk back and forth between this external plugin and your local WordPress install. So it's it's kind of like a hosted WordPress plugin, if that makes any sense. It does, actually, um, yeah. So you kind of like do a, either there's like some sort of API key or an OAuth dance, 
And yes. The the well, what's an example? Like what what's one of the what's one of the Shopify apps that you guys have? Sure. So our our biggest one's uh, one called Crowdfunder, and it basically lets shop owners set up Kickstarter type campaigns on their Shopify store. Mm. Uh, and so there are really two big parts to the application itself. Uh, one is modifications that we make to the theme to be able to inject kind of the progress meter and uh, you know all that kind of visual stuff that customers see when they visit the store. You know, the little bit that says, hey, we've sold five of ten uh, and we're halfway to our goal. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other side is the admin interface that the shop owners use where they can go in and say, hey, I want to start a new pre-funding campaign and it's going to be attached to this product. And the number that I need to sell is this and the end date is that. Uh, and I want the color of the progress bar to be blue. Um, and here's how I want, you know, the various bits of text to be worded. Um, and so th that, that whole admin interface is really the SAS portion. That's the, the stuff that we have to keep, uh, servers alive to be able to answer requests. And, you know, we, we maintain the database of the campaigns, um, and which store they're attached to and which product and all of that stuff. Um, and then kind of just inject that data into the, the Shopify store. And so then when somebody visits a page, uh, the Shopify servers actually render the, the template that we've injected into their theme uh, and then use, you know, they pull data from a combination of the shop itself and from our database. Uh, to let everything render properly. Yeah, it creates like a mashup between the two things. Yeah, that's very cool. So would you, do you, like, I'm curious mentally if you feel like there's a, mentally is the wrong word, like almost, almost emotionally, I'm almost asking for an emotional distinction between the, the, the Shopify apps and Remark. So like, do you, do you feel differently or do you categorize those things differently in your mind in terms of, I, I mean, it's, I, I think by, based on your description, it's undeni undeniably a SaaS, but it's, but remark is very much a freestanding thing that you completely control. And mm -hmm. the Shopify stuff is, is, uh, you know, a platform based solution that you, I, I don't know how it works like business model wise or, or like, uh, revenue share wise, but you must be at Shopify's mercy to a certain extent. So like, how yeah, does that, definitely. how do you, how do you, is that, I mean, I could imagine in many ways that's a good thing. So I'm kind of curious how you break those two things down. Yeah, there's, there's pros and cons to each one of those distinctions that you mentioned. Um, you know, with remark, uh, it is nice that it's not kind of, you know, that, I get to play by my, my own rules on that one. Uh, if there are things that I think would be useful and that I can do, I can just do it without having to ask anybody's permission, without having to, you know, get approval through the app store or anything like that. Um, but kind of on the downside, um, well, 
I think it'd be better if I maybe frame it in terms of upside for being on the Shopify platform. Uh, the upside to Shopify platform is that there are there's a very well-defined potential customer base, which is people that run Shopify shops. Uh, and so it's – and a lot of times those people are already looking in the app store for cool things that they can add to their store that they think would help them. Uh, so there's kind of some – you know, a pre-built marketing channel there, as well as a, a very well-defined prospect base. Uh, whereas with Remark, it's a lot. You know, it, it doesn't really have either of those advantages. Uh, there's not a pre-existing platform that we're plugging into that we can readily identify potential users, um, and there's no pre-built marketing channel that we just know people are going to find the app. So it requires a lot more kind of active work on identifying the, the target market, marketing to them, uh, trying to get in front of them, getting people's attention, all that kind of thing. Hmm. Yeah, there's no app store. Yeah. And, and uh, another kind of distinction there is that with the Shopify stuff, uh, those apps are just a lot smaller than Remark is because they're adding one feature to an existing platform instead of having to be the platform. Uh, yeah. So, so, you know, they are really very tiny apps uh, that are pretty easy to maintain on just uh, – you know, one or two Heroku instances. Um, and it, it feels a lot less risky to take some risks with the Shopify apps, just in terms of, Hey, let's build this thing that, yeah, only two people have asked for it so far, but we think it could be useful or, uh, in terms of just doing something maybe a little bit unconventional. Uh, it's so quick and easy to get one of these things, going that it just feels you know smarter to to kind of take some risks and feels okay to have some things that maybe aren't guaranteed to be home runs um if that yeah, yeah makes like sense. you can it's like we just need to do one thing well you know we don't have to yep. have like every single thing like security performance like cdns all everything it's just like yeah. we need to do one thing awesome so mm -hmm. do you find that um i have no idea about pricing or anything like that but is there a different i imagine that the, the pricing well who knows i mean is is our shopify apps like less expensive than like freestanding sorts of applications like um like remark or is it is it does it really depend it just totally depend on how much value is in the the feature when you start a new project, typically you need things like a domain name, hosting, things like that. When I choose hosting, I pick mine for the options it gives. I like to know what I'm getting and set things up just how I like them. This is why for your projects, you should check out Linode. Linode servers feature native SSD storage, a 40 gigabyte network, and Intel E5 processors. That's all the power you need to run VMs under full control or Docker containers, who doesn't love that, encrypted disks, and VPNs. Plus, they have 10 data centers across the world and add-ons like Backups, Node Balancer, and Longview to help you control your server costs. They also offer block storage for your static files. 
and you can get started with a $20 credit if you use the code FREELANCERSHOW2018. That credit is good for four months on their one gigabyte server. That's a lot of time to try them out and see if they're the right fit for you. That code again is FREELANCERSHOW2018. Also, if you're interested in working for Linode, they're hiring. Head to linode.com slash careers to see their available positions. I, I think for the most part, it depends, but I would caveat that with it seems like average price for apps is lower on the Shopify platform than it would be for you know, a standalone thing. And part of that's just because you're delivering a smaller clump of value because you're only implementing this one feature that you're plugging into an existing thing. Um, but on the other hand, I think that can be in some ways an advantage because if you know, you're selling an app that's nine bucks a month or seven bucks a month, um, in the Shopify store, you know, shop owners are going to look at that and say, oh, yeah, that's not that much. And it adds a new feature that I don't have to mess with hiring a developer to build for me. Process. So, yeah, seven bucks a month is easy. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas, you know, with standalone SaaSs, I think, um, you know, you, you're usually going to be trying to capture a little bit more than seven bucks a month uh, if you're doing something that really is providing value. Uh, and if you do price things at seven bucks a month in standalone SaaS, I think a lot of times that kind of signals low value and in some ways makes people more hesitant to pay for it. Right. Sounds buggy. I, I yeah. <laughs> What'd you say? I Sounds buggy. Yeah, exactly. I, I think there's definitely a, a sort of image of SaaS as well. You write the software, you roll it out, and you're done. You get to twiddle your fingers. So I'm curious to know how much time you spend on each of these per week. And keep in mind that you also are doing some number of consulting hours per week. So how, how, And how do you schedule that even? Um, yeah, so it really does vary by the week. Um, for the most part, uh, once we get one of the Shopify apps launched, uh, there's not just terrible amounts of upkeep or maintenance that needs to be done on them. Uh, and that's another advantage to having, you know, having them be so small and focused is that it's really easy to get to done, you know, like in a lot of SaaS there's kind of the saying that the, the product is never done because there's always going to be new features. There's going to be, you know, just technology changing out from underneath you that you need to keep up with. Uh, and with the, the Shopify apps having such a small footprint and such a small focus, uh, those really do get to a place where they feel like they're done. And, you know, okay, we don't need to add any new features to this. Uh, we've uncovered all of the big show-stopping bugs, and we've got those fixed. Um, you know, of course, there's always – users can always find some new and innovative way to break things. Uh, but <laughs> for the most part, you know, it, there's not a lot of upkeep. Um, I've got them set up on Heroku uh, and other services that, you know, handle a lot of the – I guess what you might think of as physical upkeep 
uh, you know, keeping the servers alive, all that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, those for the most part feel like they're, they can get to mostly done. Uh, there, there has been a, a pretty good amount of churn, uh, in all of our apps recently. Churn's not the right word. Uh, well, like code churn, not customer churn, mm-hmm. uh, just in terms of trying to smooth out our onboarding processes and communications there and kind of helping people understand, um, what the setup process is doing and, you know, letting, letting them know that, Hey, we're adding these files to your theme that then control how your stuff works. Um, but that's kind of been driven by just stuff that we've learned by, you know, looking at support requests as they come in and hey what can we do to eliminate this whole category of support requests um so yeah that uh i'm so sorry are you dividing I, your I, time I, like like how many okay, hours would yeah. you say you work on each each thing per week uh in a given week in an average week for most of them it's very little uh, maybe two to three hours of just kind of Keeping up on bug snag reports and making sure that you know we, we've got uh, the right resources provisioned, stuff like that. Um, and, but then you know other times when we do uncover a bug or some new feature or you know one of those onboarding problems, um, sometimes it'll be fifteen or twenty hours that week just trying to to get that new feature out the door. Um, and then with Remark, it's, uh, you know, on, on a week when I'm not actively working on Remark, it's again, maybe a couple hours at most of just keeping up with bug reports and, uh, support requests. Um, and then, you know, the occasional very busy week of 15 hours or more that's okay. I'm trying to work out this new feature or isolate this weird rendering problem that somebody's uncovered. Um, but it's, you know, all, I, and I think all of them, uh, have been set up in a way that we kind of have managed customer expectations or I, you know, I try to manage customer expectations and let people know really as quickly as I can that either, okay, yes, this is a huge problem and I'm going to have a fix for you absolutely as quickly as I can, because it shouldn't be working this way or, Oh, yeah, that's that is a problem, and I I acknowledge it, and I will definitely try to get something working. But this is kind of a way off in left field edge case that you know I can't make a a good business case for dropping everything to fix this. But I will try to have something ready for you next week or the week after that. Um, and for the most part, people are very receptive to you know even. Even when I say, you know, it's going to be two weeks before I probably have something ready for this, people are usually pretty okay with that just as long as I let them know that and, you know, they don't feel like I'm just blowing smoke at them. Mm, Customer support is a good segue into a question that I've been wanting to ask, which is how is switching from, you know, straight up dev work to this more SaaS model changed your your work and and your life in the bigger, you know, your work life, let's put it like that. So like the, what you just described sounds a little bit like a cust, like a a consulting sort of development, hourly customer conversation, but it's different. 
So like how, how has moving or making this shift changed your, your work life? Uh, yeah, it, it definitely is different. Um, I think one of the biggest changes, uh, or I guess really one of the biggest differences between, uh, doing the work on my own projects versus doing client work is talking directly to customers. Uh, cause a lot of times with client work, I'm not really the, you know, I'm definitely not the frontline support. Uh, and in a lot of cases, I really don't even have access to customers to even, you know, ask questions about uncovering problems or anything like that. That's somebody else's job and they do that and they filter stuff down and gets turned into, you know, Hey, here's this big new category of problem that we need to solve and we need your advice on how to do it. Or, you know, if it's, if it's something that's more in the contracting realm, it's a, here's a feature, build it, um, versus, you know, really being kind of down in the trenches and, uh, getting more at root problems and coming up with the diagnosis instead of just implementing somebody else's, uh, prescriptions. Yeah. Like somebody else's understanding of what's going on. Yep. You know, I, what, one of the reasons why I tell people that I'm so happy to be doing training instead of software development is that I don't have to worry about getting bug reports and fixing them and, you know, people's emergencies in the middle of the night. That's just sort of a thing of the past for me now. Um, and, but when you do a SaaS, you're not only dealing with bug reports from your client in the middle of the night, getting bug reports from all of your clients <laughs> in the middle of the night. <laughs> and for some of them, look, I mean, for, for uh, Remark, I guess, you know, if you tell them, hey, I'm working on that, give me a day or two and I'll have it done. For the most part, like as long as they can put out their book or document or whatever, I'm sure they're happy. But, you know, if something goes wrong in the Shopify app, then this is this is like someone's money, someone's livelihood on the line to some degree. Um, so, do you, do you feel like your time, like you had to spend at least at the beginning when you launched these apps, uh, these SaaS apps, did you feel that you were spending a lot of time dealing with these bug reports at breakneck speed because it was live and because it was uh, mission critical? Um, I, I really don't think that I ever did feel that way. Uh, and I think that was a combination of like on the on the Shopify things, I think a lot of that is a function of them just being so small and focused that and and you know couple that with the Shopify review process, uh, you know they don't want stuff getting into the app store that they know is buggy, uh, and so they do a pretty good job of trying to exercise all of the features that are built into the thing before they even let it get listed. So there have been a couple of the shops, you know, during that review process, um, the the Shopify reviewer will uncover new edge cases that we hadn't thought about. Uh, and so then that just kind of delays the, the launching to get it into the shop, but it's not really a, you know, hair on fire class of problem. Uh, it's the kind of thing that we can take a day or two days or a week if we want to get everything fixed up and then resubmit for uh, approval. Um, 
and you know knock on wood maybe we're just lucky that we haven't had any big you know hardware or infrastructure problems that have just taken everything down and required a you know middle of the night recovery or anything like that um but just on the on the feature side you know everything is so small and focused that between having good test coverage uh good you know between having good test coverage and their review process uh it kind of eliminates really the chance for a lot of super critical bugs to be hiding in there right right so i mean in some ways then it's not just your good coding um but it's also the fact that you shopify is willing to act as your qa team in many ways and yep. if it gets delayed it gets delayed that's really nice what about a remark? I mean, I guess there it might be less mission critical, you know, make you sweat about it. But you said it's much, obviously, it's a much larger thing. It's standalone. Have you had any things like that? Um, again, no real big, um, just, you know, infrastructure or, you know, just the whole system going down type problems. Um well, I, I take that back. I, I did have one. I guess I've had one kind of hair on fire incident, uh, and it of course came when uh, my wife and I were on vacation. Uh, we were in <laughs> we were in Finland, uh, staying up at a like winter resort, uh, which was <laughs> crazy. Didn't see the sun for a week, uh, but one night uh, when I we got back after doing stuff. I did my daily check of emails and see what's going on and had reports from several uh, remark customers that they were trying to, to generate documents and couldn't get anything to work. Um, and yeah, just the kind of the nature of remark has been one of those things where I, it's not uncommon to get one report from somebody. And I, I find that for whatever reason, they've managed to find a weird syntax that, the markdown parser doesn't deal with nicely. Um, but when I've got emails from several people telling me about it, I was like, Oh God, this is not going to be good. Um, so I spent, you know, a few hours, uh, on that one, just at the, at the resort hotel, trying to figure out what was going on. Turned out to be, uh, one of the gems that I used had pushed, you no, know, they had, they had revoked a version that I had locked to. And so, that coupled with AWS having cycled one of my servers, like tore down an old one, spin up a new one. Uh, the automated install process couldn't find that version of the gem that had been revoked. And so it kind of had everything went kablooey. Uh, <laughs> That's the perfect storm. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. And while on vacation. Uh, so, you know, once I got that uncovered, it, it, it was, you know, a, a three or five minute change to get a new version shoehorned in there and do that. And write kind of an angry letter to the gym out, uh, angry email to the gym author saying, "Hey, why'd you revoke that?" It's kind of a jerk move. Uh, <laughs> so but yeah, for the most part, uh, you know, when when an individual user encounters a problem in Remark, I can usually fairly quickly diagnose where in the document the problem is, and at least. Tell them, hey, if you leave out this one problematic snippet, you can get things working again. And I'm going to now go try to figure out why this snippet is problematic and what 
I can do to work around it so that you don't have to even be aware that this is a problem. But in the meantime, here's how you can not be just dead in the water. Right. Yeah, that's nice. So uh, do you feel like you, do you feel like you talk to people more? And when I say talk, I mean, just, you know, in all the ways that we talk digitally Mm -hmm. these days, do you feel like you talk to people more now or, or before you did SaaS products? Um, yeah, I definitely talk to more people now about the problems that my SaaSes are trying to solve than I did before. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, yeah, and what do you, that's what a do good you point. Talk, More people. Actually, right. Like it might not I'm even also be. Curious, like, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Ruben. No, I'm just curious. Like, like, do you talk to them on the phone or do you just get bug reports? Like how, how uh, much do you try to really be in touch with them to understand their problems? Um, a lot of it's just bug reports and via, you know, email or uh, like intercom chat. Uh, when when new people do sign up for Remark, I always invite them to schedule a 15-minute basically intro meeting with me where I like to ask them, you know, I, I do want to learn about their business and figure out, you know, why why do you think Remark could be a good fit for you and what kind of things are you going to be trying to do with it? Um, and, you know, if a lot of times uh, – uh, during that, I can, you know, kind of help people really get pointed in the right way, in the right direction so that they're going to be successful. And then sometimes I, I find out that, oh, yeah, you, you have completely the wrong idea about what this thing is. And, you know, it's not a substitute for, you know, if, if you're looking for something that you would hire an InDesign expert to, you know, produce your glossy brochure for you. Remark's not a good fit for that, and I'll I'll tell you right up front, and you can save your time uh, trying to beat it into that shape because you're not going to be able to. Uh, and, you know, people are appreciative are appreciative of that. Uh, you know, they they don't want to waste their time, and they're always happy if I can keep them from doing that. I'm wondering and, if, you know, yeah, I, that but, helps cut down on future requests, you know, like trying to help that person beat the thing into the shape that it's not going to be. <laughs> yeah. Self-preservation <laughs> instinct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious. I'm curious. Uh, the thing I, I feel like maybe Ruben and I are both kind of getting at is like, like personality type. That's a good fit for this. Mm-hmm. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering how different it is from client work. Because client work, I think in best case scenario, I think people who are good at doing client work, I think the communication levels need to be pretty high. That is, mm-hmm. I think not having high levels of communication during a software project is a recipe for potential disaster. So, you know, I think that that in a, in a service business, and both of these are, you know, you might think of them as software businesses, dear listener, but they're both service businesses. Uh-huh. Having you know, being a, a sort of closet case neck beard is not a great fit <laughs> for either one of these, right? Am I, I'm not a SaaS guy. I've never, I've launched maybe two or three SaaSs to complete failure. So I, I don't have personal experience to draw from the SaaS department, but uh, I, that's what I'm trying to get at. I'm sort of curious is, is how the social skills, the soft skills translate between client work to 
direct customer service or mm-hmm. or marketing you know because you're because now you know some of the some of these conversations are really i would qualify as marketing not customer service mm-hmm. so you know do you feel like they're transferable skills or do you feel like you're really moving into a different mode when you're shifting between the two uh i think it really is a different mode um I mean, like you say, with with client work, you, you do still have to be a good communicator. And, you know, if you're not, you're going to have a bad time and people are going to be upset with you. Uh, but I find that with client work, I am pretty consistently always talking to the same types of people, whether it's other developers or a CTO or a project manager. And we all already kind of have some shared vocabulary and customs and just ways of communicating that are fairly standard kind of across the board. And so, you know, it's, it all is, it, it all kind of feels like one type of, communication there Mm -hmm. but with stuff yeah there are plenty of my customers that are not devs or product managers or ctos uh and the style of communication and the you know it's just different because we don't kind of have that shared um foundation upon which all of the communication is built uh, and I do, I definitely find myself having to be conscious of that and having to kind of think through, you know, what in explaining this, what assumptions am I making about what this person knows that aren't really fair assumptions. Yeah. Uh, and I have to think about mm-hmm. that in a much different way than I have to with my client work. Right. Yeah. Like my wife is always showing me, um, she, she's big into knitting. And there are a lot of knitters who are people in the knitting vertical who use Shopify to sell hand dyed yarns. And let me tell you, I bet I bet a bug report from somebody who shears sheep all day <laughs> and, and then, you know, it turns that or spins that into yarn and then dyes it with natural dyes. Doesn't know a whole lot about Heroku dinos. So, yep. you know, so, so the bug reports have got to be like, you know, like almost, yeah, I, I, I'm not ragging on that person. Like, you know what I mean? It's just, but yes, I, yeah, I, I do want to illustrate, you know, that that person versus someone who works inside of, I don't know, um, uh, convert kit, who is a professional product manager of a software product who needs you to build some new feature. You guys are going to have an enormous amount of shared vocabulary. Yeah. And, and expectations, you know, with, with client work, if I get a ticket from a QA person and it's short on details, I can pretty much say, Hey, you didn't give me enough details to repro. I'm sending this back to you until you fix it. But for a customer, you can't really do that. You know, you have to be more delicate in, you know, asking for additional information. And sometimes it's, it does take a lot of back and forth just to clarify down to the point that I actually know what bug they're reporting um, yeah. than it does with 
stuff that I do for clients. Uh, and I definitely have to sometimes kind of check myself and say, oh, all right, buddy, remember that this customer is not the QA person. <laughs> you know, they're just a customer that's trying to do their thing and they don't they don't know how to format a bug report and do all the things that I'm used to. And that's on me now. Uh, I have to, you know, get as much information from them as I can and then distill that down into what I think of as a proper bug report. Yep. Yeah, I've seen plenty of those. The app's broken, all caps. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's not working. Okay. Yeah. I, I often tell clients that saying to me, the software doesn't work, is like going to the doctor and saying, it hurts me somewhere. Yeah. Um, you, you, have to, you have to be like a little more specific to get a decent answer out of that. Um, so, Jeremy, I'm curious. Uh, it sounds like your experience doing SaaS stuff has been very positive. Um, do you plan to do more and have that squeeze out the consulting work? Or do you like having the balance of different types of projects, different types of clients? That is a hard question. Um, I I definitely do plan to do more SaaSes. Uh, in fact, we I'm currently working on a kind of Kickstarter project for Shopify apps where I want to be able to spin them up faster and have kind of all of the shared bits all in one project. Uh, so that's something I've been working on, kind of laying the groundwork for being able to do more Shopify apps. Uh, and yeah, I think I would love to eventually get to where I didn't have to do consulting if I didn't want to, but I do enjoy consulting with people and getting the visibility into kind of what problems people are running into and how they're solving them. Uh, and you know, it, it still pays really well. And, um, in, in kind of a weird, uh, it doesn't, you know, non-intuitive way. In some ways it's easier to convince one of my consulting clients to pay me a whole bunch of money every month than it is to convince a potential SaaS customer to pay me just a little bit a month. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, I, I would love to eventually be able to get away from it, but I think it's probably going to be a long uh, process. Mm -hmm. It's cool. It's a cool diversification to have. And they both do feed like the expertise feeds each other. It's different. Mm -hmm. It's like horizontally, it's a, it, it feels like there's a flywheel effect there, but sort of vertically, there's nothing because the, you know, the just completely different customers, as you just pointed out, but you do, you do end up with a horizontal flywheel effect where you are such an expert at, at almost like the Lego blocks that software development is kind of turning into, you know, like, oh, here are all these pieces, like, here's LaTeX or however you say that. And here's, here's <laughs> Bash and here's Rails and here's Heroku and here's, you know, the Shopify API. And here are all these like parts that I can jam together to solve business problems. So I, I think that's really cool. I, I, and normally, if, you know, longtime listeners of the show will know that I'm a skeptic when someone comes to me with their great new SaaS idea. But this, 
I think if you approach it in the way that Jeremy's been describing here, then it, it, you could easily convince me that it was, uh, that, that you were not going down the, that sort of seductive path of the build it and they will come type of approach. So I, I mm-hmm. think this is cool for people, for people who do have a horizontal specialization, this is an interesting way to diversify and still have a, um, this kind of synergy between the different things that they're, they're doing. Cause I would imagine even the communication skills that you need to support the yarn dyer are going to translate into your client or, you know, being more empathetic in your client work, even, you know, perhaps, mm-hmm. perhaps when you're dealing, maybe not with the, the customer service reps at the client, but you know, people farther up and, you know, people who are less technical business people in the, in the client. So I, I give this two thumbs up. This has been a really good, uh, I think, tour de force, sort of a primer on uh, making a transition. But yeah, just to touch on something you you said there, I definitely think that there is kind of a flywheel effect. I have had more than one client just straight up tell me that the fact that I have my own SaaS launched in production with paying customers gives them a lot more confidence that I'll be able to you know, make good decisions for their organization, that I understand that there are business trade-offs and that it's not just a, a technology for technology's sake, uh, you know, and that, that I know how to talk to customers if I have to, uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I definitely think that that helps get, if not, if not help get leads, at least helps solidify, uh, my perceived expertise when I'm talking to leads. Yeah. It's huge street cred. Yeah. Cool. Very interesting. Yeah. Should we switch over to picks? Sounds good to me. Uh, You got anything this week, Jonathan? For you, the listeners of Freelancer Show, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at lootcrate.com. Just enter the promo code bridge 10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Uh, I do. I have been reading a book called The Seven Basic Plots by Christopher Booker, which is a total doorstop of a book. I mean, this thing is like 700 pages small print. I literally was like, oh, man, I got to buy reading glasses. This, this book forced me to buy reading glasses. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, but it is, it's super academic, but man, is it good. It's, it's supremely well-researched use pulls examples from just the entire pantheon of historical record, you know, story-wise from grim folk tales back to uh, just ancient Chinese parables all the way up to Harry Potter and, and is like, and kind of breaks things down into these seven basic plots that 
that the human brain is wired to to connect with or to be entertained by or to be engrossed in or just to be to be sucked in by and the the patterns are just too it's it's too much to say that oh you know there was one story and like through uh, i don't know migration or trade like these stories got spread and they just got reinvented for different now there's something there's something jungian and underlying in a collective unconscious about the rags to riches story or the overcoming the monster story or the hero's journey and it is i don't hardly ever read books like this but this thing sucked me in and good so highly recommend this book uh, for for really for even if you're not looking to write fiction which i'm not it's just great if you speak to people you have a story to tell you have a message it's like look this you want to engross a crowd of people have these three beats and you're done you know if you if you've got a story to tell that fits this format but you've got you know of course you're gonna have your own intrinsic details i, I just i just think this book is the greatest super super good and plus you're listening you know it's telling you a bunch of cool little stories while you're at it that you never heard uh, so that's, that's great. pretty great. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to, my, my self-serving shameless plug pick is uh, for people to go to valuepricingbootcamp.com as a, an alternative approach to building a SaaS, uh, but yet scaling your business without increasing the amount of work that you have to do. So if you're interested in making more money while working less and not having to hire additional people, then jump over to valuepricingbootcamp.com and go through that free seven day course. And that's it for me. Excellent. Uh, Jeremy, you got anything for us? Uh, I really had not planned on a pick, but I can tell you that I've been listening to a lot of the new Jack White album and I think I enjoy it. It's different. Uh, it's he it's, really endorsed it. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a it's very interesting. I mean, it's a it's an interesting combination of kind of very traditional song structures in some of the songs, mashed up with very modern sounds. Um, and yeah, I like it. It's it's interesting and worth a listen. Uh, yeah, I think that's all I got today. Excellent. Uh, my pick is also in the self-promotion department. Um, so um, I just published, I guess it'll be a few weeks, uh, a few weeks ago as of when uh, most listeners hear this, but I just published my first uh, course online that's designed to be an online course. I had a few courses I did last year that were just uh, live video feeds. And I got a lot of feedback from people on my list that uh, asking them, why didn't you sign up? And they basically said, because we don't want a live course, dummy. This is the internet. We want to be able to watch it whenever we want to watch it and go back to it. <laughs> so um, having been chastised appropriately by the internet um, and, and <laughs> by all of it. So I went back and uh, I took my two-day Git course and I turned it into a video course with over seven hours of lecture and 80 exercises and wow. all the slides. And basically um, Git is one of the most important tools and uh, least understood tools that software developers use nowadays. And the, the number of times I teach this Git course at companies all over the world. And basically when I go in, um, typically the people who come to my class have been using Git for a few months and they hate it. And they hate it basically <laughs> because they were given a list of commands of what to do. 
And when they use those commands, things usually work, but they don't know what they're doing. And when the commands don't work, then they're completely at sea. So the purpose of my course is to walk them through how Git thinks, how it works, and step by step uh, build up a, a good mental model understanding of how it works so that they can use it effectively in their own uh, work. And uh, what surprised a lot of people take the course is I deal with the network stuff, pushing, pulling, cloning, way at the end, almost as an afterthought. Because really, once you get everything else, all the other concepts, then that's just like sort of a, a that, that, then you get that uh, for free almost. So um, my course is up and running. I'll have the link in the show notes. It's on my store, which is at store.learner.co.il. And uh, there's a coupon code for listeners of the show that will give you a little discount. And if you have questions or comments about the course, I'd be delighted to hear from you. Um, and I can tell you more about it there. Um, and I think with that, we're going to close the show for today. Uh, Joby, thanks so much for joining us. And I think we're going to have you quite a bit in the future, which will be delightful. And uh, yeah. thanks, to all of you. thanks to all of you for listening. And we'll be back next week on The Freelancer Show. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.